Hello, friends. Welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. Nick Penizzato and Mike Groman here with you today once again. And we're going to be talking with Melissa Bachman. She's a longtime outdoors television celebrity, and she's the host and producer of Winchester Deadly Passion and uh, a longtime friend of mine. She's also on our National Deer Association Advisory Committee, former, former board member back in the QDMA days. She's going to talk with us about traveling for hunts and what you need to know. And that's whether you're going with an outfitter or do it yourself, because there are different things you need to think about. And this seems like the right time of year to have this discussion because a lot of people are out there kicking tires and thinking about hunts for the coming year and making plans. So the timing is right. This is also an Ask NDA Anything episode. And of course, the B-Team report. And I promise we'll have uh, something good for you or something bad. <laughs> so that, that never changes. All right. Let's say hello to a man that prefers Mountain Dew to a hot cup of coffee, the doctor. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing all right. And you do prefer Mountain Dew to coffee. Now, do you start your morning with a Mountain Dew or is that? Oh, God, no. 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 <laughs> no, I'm I'm uh, a cup of orange juice for the morning, uh, water for lunch, and then it depends on, you know, the day, but, um, I, I limit myself to one, one bottle a day, if at the most. So it'll be, you know, either some meal with supper or if I'm hunting during, you know, during the rut, it, that'll be my midday drink. And then I'll do water when I get home, but I, sorry, the Pepsi company, I'm only doing one a day. That's, that's still pretty good. I mean, have you ever met these people though, that, that start off their day with a, like a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew or a Coke or those types of things? Uh, let me see. Have I met? I, I'm sure that I have, but not obviously. But there was one time that when I was still seeing patients in the hospital, uh, a family member of a patient came down and had a two liter of Mountain Dew and was drinking it just like it was a, a 20 or, or 24 ouncer. You know, they, they were they were going at it. So I'm sure those people are out there. I used to work with a guy that he would come in uh, to the office with a Mountain Dew in his hand. And, and he would also have a chew of snuff in while he was drinking his Mountain <laughs> wow. Dew. And so one, one day, of course, you know, you work with someone long enough, you want to mess with them. So we took his Mountain Dew. He came in, set his Mountain Dew on his desk predictably, and then went off to wherever. And, and when he came back, his Mountain Dew was gone. So we thought, oh, this is going to really throw off his day. He won't know how to how to continue well unbeknownst to us he actually had a little mini fridge under his desk so he just pulled out his next mountain dew and uh <laughs> yeah didn't even phase him and so we're like well we're not we're not telling him and we'll see how long that mountain dew stays up on top of his bookcase and it did stay up there for a few days but uh yeah he was prepared <laughs> for our tomfoolery and uh made it through so and, and i gotta say too uh especially coming back after our busy show season with the archery trade show and shot show you see a lot of people that you work with in various aspects of the industry like in the mornings right getting ready to go to the show grabbing something so you see everybody's different habits and you know you've got every everything from the people who don't even think about eating food until sometime afternoon uh, you have some people that are carrying the the can of soda pop around with them to start the day coffee of course is still king and then you also see the people that are just coming in in the morning when you're going out. So 
You get to see a little bit of it all out there. All right. Hey, I have breaking news. And this might even be okay, breaking wow. news. Yeah, breaking news for you too. I don't know if we talked about this, but yeah, breaking news because this is where I normally talk about who our show sponsor is. And we've been talking about coffee and I'm I'm excited to tell you, Mike and our audience, we have a title sponsor for the Coffee and Deer podcast. And that oh, co- wow, that is I did not know that. Yes. And no, it's not you know, you're not going to have like a brand new Escalade showing up in your driveway as a host of the show. I wish wish I could tell you that. So it's not Cadillac. However, uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company is part of our new agreement with them going into this year is now the title sponsor of the Coffee and Deer podcast. So what do you think of that? I'm thinking that I am going to have to um, potentially support them and and try coffee for the first time just because of them putting some faith into us. I, I like to support people that support me. And uh, I mean, when I say I've never tried coffee, I coffee has never touched my tongue. So, Oh, wow. I guess, I guess the only thing that I can do to support them would be to say, well, if I'm going to try coffee, it's going to be from the black rifle coffee company. How about that? Well, that's more breaking news. I didn't realize that you hadn't even tried coffee. You know, some people say, well, I've never smoked a cigarette or I've never, you know, done other crazy things that some people may choose to do, but you have never even tried coffee. No, no, I've just never had any draw to, I know it, like there's been some that smell good to me, but it's just something I've never really migrated towards. I mean, that's, that is the God's honest truth. Coffee has never touched my taste buds. So wow. I don't know if we should have the listeners that understand black rifle or go to black rifle and say, okay, which one should be the first one that Mike should try but um, we might have to make that like a whole event. Yeah, and I've tried a number of their coffees, but yeah, let's let's leave that up. Maybe a listener who is a, a Black Rifle Coffee Company uh, company supporter and drinker can make a suggestion for you. Um, you know, for me, coffee. I mean, as I've gotten older, I have a little better palate, I guess, for it. But to me, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like beer generally and coffee generally. It's generally the same, however as you become more experienced, <laughs> you can tell the different beers. I obviously, I mean, I can tell the difference between a dark beer and a light beer, but if you gave me three light beers, I couldn't tell you which one was which. And like, and if you also gave me three dark roast coffees, I couldn't probably tell you which one came from where, but uh, they're generally the same, but they also, if, if you don't want to drink coffee, Mike, they've got a lot of other cool stuff as well, apparel and gear and all kinds of stuff. So it's not just coffee, but we're excited in all seriousness, to have a title sponsor. And uh, I think at this point, Mike, we've arrived. Well, uh, like I said before, it I think it means that the communication and, and the, the quality that we're trying to bring forward every time, even though we, it's in lighthearted uh, little anecdotal stories at times, but uh, um, it sounds like either the industry or uh, the listeners are at least getting us and at least get what we are about. And so that's, that's always rewarding to know that when you put hard work into something that's being acknowledged and recognized. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And we do appreciate Black Rifle Coffee Company. We're going to talk a lot about those folks. We'll have someone on from the company here at some point to tell you a little bit more about what they're up to. Uh, But for now, you can just simply go to blackriflecoffee.com and learn all about the company, get yourself some coffee, get yourself some merch, as they call it these days. And uh, yeah, 
looking forward to that relationship. Speaking of, I did mention the Archery Trade Association show and the SHOT show. I'm back from those. I did not get uh, an illness at either one. So that is, that's also kind of breaking news because that almost never happens. But we've had uh, great meetings with our corporate sponsors, those who support the National Deer Association. Um, I, I believe we have signed every single one of our existing partners that we had last year, as well as picked up some new ones. And we'll be announcing those as those contracts come in. And so uh, it's a good time for NDA. We got a lot of companies that care about conservation. They care about deer. They care about our work. And so they are giving back. And so I would always, as, as I always do, encourage people to, if you go to the NDA website and you see, go to where you can see our NDA supporters, please support those companies because they don't have to say yes and they don't have to support deer hunting and habitat and the things that you're interested in, but they do. And so we ask that you give back to those fine companies. Hey, Mike, it's an Ask NDA Anything episode and we've got two Two good questions, two timely questions. And so I'm gonna let you read the, I'm gonna let you answer the first one because uh, you have just been out doing a little bit of this work. So we'll give you the first crack at it today. And this one comes from Kyle from Ohio. First thing he says is thank you for putting out great content on the Coffee and Deer podcast. I recently started listening and been catching up on old episodes, which I've been enjoying. So thank you, Kyle, appreciate that, of course. Uh, so Kyle says, I currently live on four acres, approximately two of which are wooded. I'd really like to improve the habitat for the deer. The main tree species in the wooded acres are poplar, cherry, and hickory. I've heard quite a bit about using a chainsaw to improve the habitat. What would your advice be to best improve the habitat on the property? So it's a bit of a blind question, Mike, but generally speaking, as someone who was just out there with the chainsaw, give Kyle some help. Okay, so let's try and um, make this as clear as possible. So the first thing, Kyle, is I'd be kind of outwardly um, expanding your gaze. And what I mean by that is looking around at the properties around you with four acres, you're going to, uh, in my opinion, have to really exploit what the even like the the five square miles around your property have. So if somebody has a ton of food, if there is water elsewhere, don't try and actually pursue those things with a single you know mind focus. So on uh, two and four acres or two acres with I'm four sorry, let's try this again. Four acres with two of it being wooded, I would definitely try and thicken up the area but strategically to where you're actually creating funnels because between two acres you can really funnel deer down to almost put every deer that would actually move through there in front of you based on the wind direction so some strategic funnels for your predominant winds during the months of october november december uh, but even ohio goes into february but um a lot of those wind directions are the same so um Tree species, um, deer do feed on cherry a little bit, but they're a very early and um, very limited resource. Uh, shagbark, hickory, and hickory, not nearly at all. So if you're wanting to pick trees, 
um, Hickory would be, in my opinion, the first to go to try and open up some light to the ground and then make some strategic funnels by, you know, moving the tops or uh, felling the trees to create some funnels and pinch points for you, deer like edge, and try and steer them through your property where you might at least be able to get a chance to hunt because sneaking in and out of two acres of woods is going to be very difficult. So I'd probably set the property up for transition if they can go from, if there's a need for them to go from point A to point B, either to agriculture or cover or otherwise. And if there's no water around, maybe popping in some type of a water source might be a good thing to do. That's really small scale and easy to do with uh, a watering trough from like tractor supply or something like that, or even wild water from banks. They make those um, wild water um, that are very easily movable. So you can even move them to tweak it every year to, until you finally hone it down. That's really my general thought. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I like the idea that it's a small uh, property and your advice is to try to get the most out of that property if you're going to hunt it. Obviously, with two to four acres or four acres, you're not going to be creating you know, sanctuaries and bedding areas and all these types of things. However, uh, I used to live and hunt in Ohio and I knew people that they had five acres, but it was a darn good five acres. And so it just happened to be that little pinch point between uh, a couple other larger tracks. And I think that's where your advice is leading there. Make it as huntable as possible. And also you certainly can, in, in that amount of area, I mean, an acre is really a big area. You go out just, just for general, uh, general idea of what that is, just go out and stand in the middle of a football field and look around and you're pretty much looking at an acre. You can do an awful lot there in terms of putting some browse on the ground. Mike said add some water sources. So yeah, don't don't cut yourself short. And also, yeah, the tree species. Um, if you have stuff that just doesn't look good, it's not a healthy tree, regardless of species. When you can you can knock that down to create more cover. If you have any mass producing trees, obviously you want to try to clear uh, some area around those to make those as healthy as possible. I mean, if you have even on four acres, you have a couple really nice white oaks there that are dropping acorns you you might have the best four acres within in the county you live in so it just it just depends so anyway i think that's good advice on on that one and i think we've covered it all right next question and this one is very simple and i got a simple answer uh, for this person this person is steven from south dakota he just says one sentence when do you start looking for shed antlers <laughs> and so uh, it's a good question, right? So I will generally say, I'm not trying to dodge the question. I'll just generally say I'm always looking for them. My eyes are always to the ground. I find them throughout the year. But if we're talking specifically about this season now where we're coming out of hunting seasons and going closer towards spring, really, I don't make a concerted effort to specifically look for antlers until the end of March which I know for some that might seem late, but the reason I do that is number one, I have limited time, so I can't go out every day and search the same areas over and over again. And so I'm hoping to get as many of those antlers on the ground. 90% of the antlers that are walking around out there are usually on the ground by that time. And so really by going out in late January, early February, I might be looking for an antler that's still on a deer's head. So I'm just trying to maximize uh, my my success by waiting until most of them are on the ground. That's not the same for everybody. I know people who are actively out there looking for sheds right now. Maybe there's a specific deer that you're trying to get sheds from as well, and you're 
really looking for those sheds, which I get it too. You want to, you don't want, you want to get them before somebody else does. But that's my answer. Pretty basic. Uh, I have had trail camera pictures into the second week of April that deer still had antlers on. And so it does happen. And that's why I choose to wait. How about you, Mike? My timeline is almost uh, exactly similar to yours. Um, for me, last week of March, first week in April, because I just tie my shed hunting into scouting for turkey. So that's about the time I'm going to get up in the morning early, start listening for turkeys, scouting the area while I'm scouting for turkeys. And historically, I find a lot of overlap in their habitat and I've picked up a lot of sheds just doing it that way. But if you're in an area that's really competitive with um, individuals out there with dogs picking up sheds, um, I, I guess, you know, you're at, you're at a loss at that point, you're fighting an uphill battle, but on smaller pieces, if you're trying to, as Nick said, collect a specific buck, I will wait because once they're on the ground and if it's a private piece of property, no one's going to be picking them up other than rodents chewing on them. So to, on a smaller piece to bump a deer out, have move, you know, to another location and have them drop on a neighbor's where you can't have access and you might lose the opportunity to collect those uh, drop sheds. Um, later is always better than earlier. Glad you brought up turkeys because yeah, you certainly can scout for turkeys while you're looking for antler sheds. But on the flip side, I find myself looking for antler sheds during during turkey season a lot because maybe you're not hearing any birds. You you don't get the opportunity when they first fly down, and so you've got some time there while you're waiting for the birds to get active again. It's a great time to be looking for antler sheds as well. So yeah, uh, beards and bucks, I guess as they call it. All right, Mike, we have an awful lot to talk about with our friend Melissa Bachman today. She's going to tell us about things you need to consider when it comes to booking your hunt and whether that be a outfitted hunt or a do-it-yourself hunt. She also shares some, I don't know if I want to call them horror stories, but sort of some war stories from being out there and things when things don't always go right. So with that, let's go ahead and bring in Melissa. Excited to bring Melissa Bachman onto the show. Uh, good to see you, Melissa. Melissa is a producer and host of Winchester Deadly Passion. She produces other content as well. She's done a fair amount of work for us here at the NDA over the years. She's also an NDA advisory committee member, so she's very involved in our work and works also with a number of different conservation groups across, across the country as a spokesperson and an ambassador and uh, just an all-around good friend. So it's good to see you, Melissa. Thank you for being on. Well, thank you guys for having me. I sure appreciate it. Been wanting to have you on for a while, but it's like, I'm always cognizant of your time and you're always traveling. And so there's hunting season, but then I realize, well, when there's not hunting season, there's always something else you're traveling to. So it's just kind of hard to squeeze you in. Yeah. There's a hunting season, show season, speaking season, editing season. There's, there's always something going on, but that's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. It's good to be popular and you're certainly that. So why don't you don't, if you don't mind, fill in the gaps a little bit, tell folks uh, that may not know a ton about you, a little bit about you and uh, make sure you include what's happening with the weather there in South Dakota right now. Well, um, I actually have a show called Winchester Deadly Passion. I'm in season 13 right now. Um, it's always been my dream since I was a little girl to hunt every day. Um, that's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, that's been pretty close to reality for several years. I think I was on the road about 320 days a year. 
Um, that's not every day, but I learned quickly. That's probably as close as I need to get. <laughs> um, now I have a family. My husband is a game warden here in South Dakota. We have four children and um, we live out here. We absolutely love South Dakota. Now, lately, it's been a little rough. I'm not going to lie. We've had two <laughs> snowstorms back to back. We got... I think a little bit west of here got 52 inches on the first snowstorm. Um, we had 40 mile an hour winds for days. Uh, there's drifts over people's homes. Everyone finally got dug out of that. And then we just got another two feet of snow about two days ago. Um, the kids are still all home from school today still um, because of that. So I feel like between Christmas break and snowstorms, they haven't been in school for like a month. <laughs> Um, sure. But the nice part is we live in an area where we've got just phenomenal hunting, you know, and we're centrally located. So if I'm not hunting here, it's always just a little bit seemingly closer to a lot of the locations I want to hunt. So that has been a huge help for me. And, you know, we have land here that we are able to manage and take care of. And that's kind of always been a dream of both my husband and I to be able to do that. And we're just slowly, just like everyone else, just making it a reality and just chipping away little bit by little bit. Well, it's certainly fun to watch, and we're going to tell people uh, at the end of the show here where to find you on social media. I saw the the uh, thing you posted the other night with the snow out back and how he had just shoveled, and it was blown back in, and it reminded me of my time living in North Dakota, and so I certainly under feel your pain a little bit out there. The wind is what kills you. <laughs> the wind is what kills you, yep. So, well, you're the perfect person traveling over 300 Time, uh, 300 uh, days a year to talk about this subject. And that is, we want to get into this conversation about planning hunting trips, not not backyard hunting trips, but trips that might be out of state, even, even potentially out of country in some cases. You've done all of that. And I think it's around this time of year that people are probably thinking about planning those trips, booking those trips. Uh, for example, we got the Great American Outdoor Show coming up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's loaded with outfitters, people booking trips. And so we just thought this would be the time to have someone like yourself on to talk through this. And so what I want to do is start with just, just in the very, the very basics you're starting to think about, you know what, I want to go on a hunting trip. Um, major areas people should focus on, like, for example, is it already, is it already too late if you want to do something for the 2023 season? Well, it's definitely not too late, but it really depends on what state you want to travel to and how you want to take that game. If you're bow hunting, um, there's different regulations as far as tags go than with a rifle or with a muzzleloader. Um, one of the nice things is, you know, there are a lot of options out there and now's the time to start checking because if you go to the shows, like I'll be at the Great American Outdoor Show, I book hunts there every year. Um, I book hunts at SCI, I book hunts at different locations. But what you want to do is kind of come up with where do you want to go and start getting that information? How hard is it to draw a tag? Do they have landowner tags? Um, there's certain places like New Mexico, for example. I love elk hunting there, um, but it takes quite a few years to draw even an archery elk tag there. Now, they do always have the option, if you have the money, you can buy a landowner tag. For me, I don't have the money to be buying all those tags, so usually what I do is I'll wait for the draw. Um, and there's also organizations now, there's several of them, that will put you in for tags each year. So that way, even if you don't maybe have the money this year to go hunting or you're not sure where you want to go, they can put you in for various states and just start getting those points built up. So that way, when you are ready to do it, you're all set. And what I like about it 
is for me, I don't have to worry about when the deadlines are or all those different logins and passwords. I use Hunt and Fool and they just kind of take over for you. And I sat down with them at a show, um, picked the states that I wanted them to put me in for. And what I like is now I've been building up points for four or five years that I wouldn't have never thought to put in for before. So, so for people who are kind of on the fence, that's a good way to kind of get things ready. And then when you are ready to pull the trigger and, and book that hunt, Definitely start talking to outfitters, to people, to DNR agents in that area to find out what are the rules, how long is it going to take to draw so you can plan your trip accordingly. All right, Melissa. So you talked about talking to outfitters and being able to get the most out of your hard-earned money to make sure you're on at least going to enjoy yourself in regards to the experience. But let's talk about the outfitters specifically. What are you looking for in an outfitter? What should people be looking for in an outfitter before they put down their hard-earned money? Well, one thing I like to have is a very open line of communication. Um, There's one thing nobody can control. Nobody can control the weather and nobody can control the animals. So you want to book a place that you believe has good quality, right? But the most important thing I think of is booking a place where they can control the things that they can control, right? So if you come in and camps broke down, the shower doesn't work, there's no cook there, guess what? Those are things that are in their control. So you want to find someone who's reputable, who's been doing it for a while, and who who can provide you a list of people that you can talk to, references, and see what that experience was like. Because what you do not want to have is you do not want to think that you're going to be staying in a cabin with a heater and you show up and it's now a tent camp and you're on a float trip and you don't have the right supplies. So a big part is, is talking through it, making sure you know exactly what you're expecting out of the accommodations, out of the guides, how many other people are there going to be there with you? You know, if you're going on a deer hunt, maybe they're dropping two, three people off, not a big deal. But if you're going on a elk hunt or a spot and stock mule deer hunt, and all of a sudden you're in the truck with two to three other guys and you got to take turns, that changes things a lot. So a big part is communication, asking those questions and really making sure that you feel you understand every aspect of what you're getting into. Again, you might get there, it might be November and all of a sudden it's 80 degrees and the deer aren't moving. Nothing anyone can do about it, but make sure that you pick someone that can control all those things that can be controlled. Yeah, I love that answer because inevitably what I hear when people go up to an outfitter at a show is they'll, one of the first questions they'll say, you'll hear them say this, they'll say, well, what is your success rate? I mean, that's not the question to start with, is it? No. I, well, I mean, you can ask it. That's fine. The problem is that number can be very skewed, right? Um, because, okay, so what is your success rate? Well, that depends. What The first question you really need to ask is, let's say, let's just use whitetails, right? Let's say you're going after whitetails in Illinois, and this is a hunt you've always dreamed of. The first thing you need to decide is what caliber of a deer are you looking for, right? Because if you have a goal in mind of shooting a 180 inch deer and you don't want to shoot anything but that, or you'll go home, well, you need to ensure you're going to a location that has shot some 180 inch deer. Now, if you're just looking that, you know what, I want to shoot a Pope and young buck. I want a 125 inch deer with my bow then talk to them and make sure you're hunting a location that allows that. There's some outfitters that have 140 inch minimum, right? Make sure that you don't get yourself in that situation or you could be facing a fine. Another thing I've started to see it, 
Sometimes people will add a trophy fee on top of it. So let's say you're hunting and you shoot a monster and you get back to camp and all of a sudden they say, well, you owe us an extra X amount of dollars. Those are things you want to hash out before you ever get there so that you're not being fined for it being too small or too big. You want to make sure you're all on the same page. Yeah, at this point, I think people's heads are spinning because those are things that they typically don't think about. Um, yeah, I, I had a guy one time, he was asking me for advice on an outfitter and he said, I'm looking for a place like I want to know where that sweet spot is where like if I pay about this amount and the odds are about this, like he was looking for that medium spot. And it's like, listen, man, you can pay a five for $5,000 to go hunt whitetails in Iowa and still get nothing. It has nothing to do with the price you pay. And that's the hard part. You know, people get frustrated and I'm in camps with people and I see it where they come in, they've had their hard earned money. They've worked for three years to save this up. They paid the money and they just expect a buck to walk out in front of them and they shoot it. Right. They see it on TV. It happens within 30 minutes. What's going on here? Well, the truth is that's not how it always works out. Not even close. And what you need to understand is you also have to be a very good hunter. You can be put in the very best situation on the best property. But if you want to get out of your stand every day at 9 a.m. and you don't want to go back in till three because you have games to watch or you just want to take a nap or whatever it is, you cannot get frustrated when things don't always work out for you. You have to be a good hunter on your end as well. And that also comes with coming prepared. Um, there's been a lot of people who had big bucks and they miss them, right? I've missed deer. Everyone's missed deer, but you want to make sure that you're putting in your time so that if that does happen, that hopefully you can seal the deal. Um, there's not giant whitetails behind every tree, not anywhere. I wish I could say there were, um, there's just not. And I do hunts all over the country. And I'd say a lot of times I'm only successful on about a third of my hunts. So if you think that through, that's that's not great odds always. And I'm going to locations where I really, you know, have put in the time and, and I know the area, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get a big buck every time. So, Melissa, let's talk quickly about physical fitness. You you put in several hunts a year. Some of them are probably more or less physically demanding. Talk about how you need to prepare for that as well, if you don't mind. Well, I think one of the things with physical fitness is really having an open, an open dialogue with your guide, knowing that if you come into camp and you are fit, that wherever you need to be, that you can get, right? Because what you don't want to do is you never want to limit yourself and have a guide think, well, I've got a huge buck over here, but you know, I don't know if they can walk the half mile to the stand or climb up the stand. So I think sometimes that's where the physical fitness comes in, where you want people to know that wherever those biggest deer are, you can get to them. Also on Western hunts, they don't want to take you somewhere where they think you're going to quit on them, right? So you need to show that you have the attitude to keep going and to keep trying and to keep after everything. And I think that's important as well. And let's face it, when you get an animal down, I always help pack everything out. Um, you don't want your guide to not even go to an area because they think that they're going to have to pack the entire thing out. So it's important to be as physically fit as possible. But with that said, sometimes attitude's even more important, especially for whitetail hunts. Um, I've seen people who maybe aren't in the best of shape, but you know what? They will sit out there and they will sit all day. They will sit through the rain. And that counts for a lot because guides 
oftentimes they'll put you in their very best stands if they know you're not going to be coming back and forth. Because if you think about it, when you're going in and out, you leave at 10 a.m., you leave, you come back in, that's now two extra trips in and out and that much more pressure on deer. And those guides, they got to guide that for the whole year. So you really want to be smart about that. And that's something anyone can do. I don't care what level of fitness you're at. If you're mentally tough enough, you can stick it out. And if you're prepared and have the right gear, you can sit all day. And that's a lot of times what I do. And I think a lot of times that's why I attribute my success to that is because I'm willing to go that extra mile when others want to come out. I'll sit all day. And I do believe a lot of times they'll put you in a better spot just because of that. Yeah, that's an important aspect to bring up. And uh, we have, we've, we've reported on research that's out there that shows rest periods between stands and when deer come back. And yeah, if you're going in two, three times a day, that's going to overdo it. You're going to overcook your stands and no outfitter wants to do that either. Uh, so I think that's an important point to bring up. And also Melissa's saying, I don't want it to be missed by people that she said that she's successful on about a third of her hunts. And that's actually really good. I mean, the average person is successful even less than that. So, you know, when you put that money down, don't expect great things, especially when we're talking hunting white-tailed deer. I mean, a, a baited bear hunt in Canada is probably a different deal. I mean, very high success rates there. But if you're going white-tail hunting, uh, that don't expect those kind of results because these are white-tailed deer and uh, there is no control over what those animals are going to do when you're out there and so they're about as tough as it gets and so yeah, speaking, no question through my all my hunts i would say my lowest success rates always white-tailed deer to shoot a mature buck is the hardest hunt um over and over again it's just there's just not that many everything has to be right and people need to remember that even though that might be the most sought after it's probably the most difficult as, as well yep and so therefore i think a question to ask an outfitter i think a fair question is what are people seeing out there like what what is the op, the odds that i'm going to see the type of deer that i would like to get and i think they can probably give you a reasonable uh, answer on that so let's talk about just pitfalls though. It's not always great. You don't always hire a guide and things are wonderful from start to finish. So what would some of the challenges be if you're, if you're hiring a guide or potential pitfalls? And also, do you have, do you have a personal experience that you don't mind sharing that didn't go as expected? Yeah. You know, there's always things that come up. One of the biggest challenges I see is you go to a place, you hire an outfitter who's reputable, who's been there a long time. You show up in camp and you get a guide who was hired two days ago. They don't know anything about anywhere and that can be a real challenge. So one question I always like to ask outfitters is who's going to be my guide and how long have they guided for you? How well do they know the property? Get a little background on them. You know, what do they do? Are they there all the time? What's been, you know, what's the average shots? Um, I think things like that are important because that guide's usually going to be the one setting up those stands. So what I want to hear is that most of your shots are between 20 and 30 yards um, when you're bow hunting. Or with a gun, they're 100 yards and in, you know, because sure, there might be a few outliers, but you want to ensure that you have the highest chance of success that's possible while you're on that hunt. And I think finding out, you know, how long their guides have been there, that's probably one of the key things that people often miss and that can really change a hunt. I've had uh, many, many hunts that have gone south for various <laughs> reasons. Um, I showed up in an elk camp with a guy who had never, ever been on the property. He was hired that day. Um, and he said, you know, as much as I do. So we're in it together, which, oh, you know, I appreciate his honesty, but when you spent that much money on an elk hunt, that's not what you wanted to hear. 
And um, the outfitter had made the cook upset and the cook quit. So each night he would leave like a bucket of KFC chicken or something in the middle of the table. <laughs> and we'd come home about five hours later after elk hunting all day. And that was our food. So one thing, and people always make fun of me for, but I've been in enough camps where you may or may not have the best foods. I literally bring like tons and tons of snacks. Like if they don't have any food, I'll be good. My cameraman will be good. We'll be good for the week of things we like because I've been in those situations. You try to plan accordingly so that doesn't happen, but it still happens from time to time. And you know what? I'm not one that's just going to get up and quit. I'm going to try to tough it out and make the best of it. Um, so those are a few things that you can do to try to get you through the tougher times. See, and I'm just going to jump in right there and and call out Kip Adams. Kip was busting on me for having extra snacks in my bag, whether I needed them or not. See, Melissa goes the same route. So, Melissa, thank you for that. But I could probably feed the whole camp with the extra <laughs> snacks. <laughs> and I'll bet there's some Mountain Dew in that pack somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I actually finally quit drinking some Diet Dew. I got oh, did you? Away. <laughs> I was drinking like seven a day for a long time, and I decided that's probably not the healthiest route. So trying to go heavy on the water now it's a constant <laughs> battle but doing the best we can <laughs> gotcha gotcha so taking it a different direction we like to put it on all put everything on the outfitters and there is obviously a lot of pressure on them but you understand the outfitting business what do outfitters expect from a guest because I, I think what they don't expect is you don't show up with these expectations that you if you don't go home with something it's not a success yeah, you know, there's that. Um, you got to be open minded. You got to know that you are doing a free range hunt. These deer are not out there. It is not guaranteed. And if you are going to make bad decisions as a hunter, it might not work out for you. The other thing is you need to be prepared. And when I say prepared, I always like to ask guides and outfitters, do you have a gear list that you recommend? Now, I may not go by that 100%, but I like to know what they're trying to tell me to have because. You don't want to show up and not have the right items that you need to make that a successful hunt. I was in a camp. A guy showed up. He said, I got a brand new Matthews bow. I'm pumped. It was still in the box. Oh. Peep sight had not been put on. There's no sight on it. He had arrows that were uncut and he literally had no idea. He was so proud that he got a new bow. So obviously that's an extreme. But the point is you can't show up and not have practiced or not know your equipment. Those are things that are important. If possible, a lot of times I like to bring two bows on an archery hunt. Mm. Um, and the reason being is if something happens, if your bow blows up, a cam go, whatever could happen, you are kind of out of luck. Bows aren't something that you can just pass on from one to, to the other. So I usually try to keep just a spare bow and bring it with me if possible. I actually got a case that holds two of them for that reason. Um, and I think it's important. And then also to let them know what are your limitations. So as an archery hunter, here's my maximum effective range. And I think it's important to know that both for you and for your guide, because you don't want to be out there and all of a sudden you see an elk at 80 yards and you're like, yeah, I think I can do it. Let's give it a try. It's not fair to the elk. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the guide. What you need to do is kind of set those things up ahead of time and know what are those maximum ranges and then stick to it in the field. And that's true with a muzzleloader, a shotgun, a rifle, whatever it may be. You really need to know where is that limit cut off and it has nothing to do with the antler size. Yeah, I'd love that you brought that up too, because we also, as a, as a client, you shouldn't go to an outfitter expecting 
that you should that you deserve or you know deserve something just because you're on a hunt and then do unethical things that you would never probably do in your own hunting areas and the range thing's interesting because uh, mike you'll recall this on a hunt where our buddy kurt colbert shot his it was like 180 some inch deer in illinois on a hunt that we were on and the, the outfitter asked he said who's comfortable shooting potentially to 50 because this deer could use a trail that's 20 or he could use one between there and 50. And Kurt raised his hand, said he was comfortable and he shot that deer, I think at 44 yards. So there's a real life example. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it was, that was the, one of the first conversations when they were giving us the orientation to camp and what we were going to be doing the next day. So it is important to know what your effective range is and be confident in that as well. Yeah, I'm just mad I didn't raise my hand before Kurt did because you know that was a heck of a deer. But uh, let's switch gears just a tad here and talk about going on out-of-state hunts. And this has become more and more popular, DIY. So you're doing it yourself. Melissa, you're going to go for the first time and let's say you're going to a place in Colorado you've never been, but you've got a tag and you want to hunt an elk, for an example. Where do you start? So one of the very first things I do is a lot of times I will get online, do some mapping and figure out, you know, what areas in that unit that I can hunt. Um, I also will sometimes call the local game wardens um, to find out, you know, access requirements, um, different rules that apply to public land sometimes, um, especially for me if I'm filming. Um, you can't just go out and film on public land and just be fine. I have to get film permits. There's a lot of things. So a lot of times I like to get in contact with local officials. But the next thing is you really need to block off some time. Um, I'm a firm believer that scouting is huge. If you could get out there even before the season starts to acclimate yourself, to see what it's going to be like, I think you're money ahead because even though it might be a second trip, what can happen is you can realize, you know what, now that I've seen this, I need to plan for this, or we're going to have a tent camp. I need to do this, this, and this and set up accordingly. Or even if there's a small town, go into a local coffee shop talk to people. I mean, a lot of these small towns, there's a lot of things you can do by just word of mouth or by chatting it up with people and saying, you know, you're an avid hunter. You came out here, you're a hardworking person, you know, just looking for a great spot. And all of a sudden you never know what kind of opportunities may await. And then when it does come time, give yourself time, you know, don't plan to go out and do a four day trip and get out of there and come home. When you're doing a DIY, it takes time you don't know that land. You don't know all the roles. You don't know what the animals are doing. So give yourself time to learn that because a lot of people will always say, gosh, by the time I left, I felt like I was just getting a good grasp on things. So if you're going to go that route and you're not spending the money on an outfitter, try to take a little bit more vacation. So that way you can really get to know what's happening on that property and make the best of it. And there have been some monster bulls deer, everything killed on public land on do-it-yourself hunts. But the one common denominator, people put in that time scouting and they put in the time in the field. Yeah, I think having a network of friends is important. Um, having myself done a lot of DIY out in that area, even in North Dakota, um, you're hunting mule deer. We, we talk about public land in the east. Well, it's a whole different idea out west like you go out and stand on public land in the west and you're looking at millions of acres we're here if you have a couple thousand acre block that's a big deal and is this is another example of networking and, and having friends and, and sharing data um 
our friend Sean Lucknell from Heartland Bowhunter was going to hunt mule deer out in North Dakota. And we talked about it and I gave him all of my points, showed him right where I put my tent and all these things. And so that was a huge step and helpful. And then I'm sure he would pass that along as well. So yeah, the local knowledge, having friends, sharing information, I think that's all helpful. And, and what we haven't talked about yet is how to get to these places. Now, I know you do an awful lot of driving. Um, and so just, just with that, the advantages of driving to flying, even, even if it's going to take you a day and a half to get there. Well, definitely the number one thing is luggage, right? Um, so not only will they soak you on fees, um, I often come to the airport with three bags at over 70 pounds each. And they look at you and all they see is dollar signs, right? So you may have paid $300 for your ticket, but suddenly your baggage fees are double that, right? So that's always a challenge with that. The other part is your bags don't always make it. Mm. I've probably had a half a dozen hunts where I show up. I don't have a bow. I don't have clothes. I don't have anything for the hunt. And that can be extremely frustrating, especially when you've paid for this hunt. You maybe only have a five-day hunt. Now your bow or your whatever's missing for two days, it's a big problem. So a lot of times what I do is if I can, I like to drive. Um, it gives you advantages to be able to, being able to bring as much gear as you might want, but it also helps you if you are able to harvest an animal that you can bring that animal home. I like to bring a lot of my meat back with me. And that makes it much easier because when you get on these airlines and you're trying to package it up, it's very difficult, especially if you came in heavy with heavy bags and now you're trying to go home with all that heavy bags and the extra meat. A lot of times it just gets to be too expensive, too many headaches. And if anyone's traveled lately, um, there's a good chance you've been delayed or canceled um, one after another after another. Um, so the good thing about driving is if it says it's going to take 18 hours, you put in your time, you'll be there in about 18 hours. Um, flying, you might be there in a day, you might not. And that's not always a risk I'm willing to take. No, and he brought up bringing home the animal too. People don't don't just think about what you need to get out there, If you're especially if you're flying. You need to think about if you have to bring an animal home. And I remember distinctly a trip coming home from Idaho and I was bringing a bear home and sticking, I had bear parts in my clothes packed in all the different bags trying to stay under the weight limit and I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. So don't be like me, <laughs> be prepared and think about that ahead of time uh, for sure. And even one thing, I was just up in uh, Alberta this year, you know, um, I had to fly. I didn't drive on that trip and I had a mule deer and a whitetail and then both their capes. I was not going to be bringing the meat home. I, the outfitter that I was hunting with really wanted it. And I said, no problem, but we needed a Rubbermaid tub for it. Hmm. Um, so now in the future, what I'll do is I'll just kind of use a Rubbermaid as one of my items and just put a few things in on the way up. So that way on the way back, I have it ready to go. Um, we literally looked for hours trying to find a tub with a cover that fit. We never did find a cover that fit, but we got, had enough duct tape on it that it made it look like it fit. <laughs> um, so, you know, just trying to be prepared on little things like that and making sure you have time to freeze everything and, and tape it up good and label it. And then too, you know, I reached out to you about finding out Legally, where can you cross with different animal parts and making sure that you're a hundred percent legal. And you gave me some great advice on that. And I think that's something that people really need to know, especially when you're driving and crossing state lines, maybe not just the location you're hunting, but where you're going to. Yeah. With chronic wasting disease, especially. And, and one of the things I'm looking at here on my list is to, to mention always understanding wherever state you're going to or province, 
or another country, what are the rules and what are the regulations there? Because they vary so much across the country. Everything from, you know, don't show up to Idaho with mechanical broadheads and think that you're allowed to use that because you can't use them there. Don't show up to Iowa with a crossbow and think you can use it there because you could use it in Ohio. You got to know those rules. And when it comes to chronic wasting disease, you can't just shoot your deer in South Dakota and drive it back to Pennsylvania because every state line you cross, you're probably breaking the law because there are, there are rules about that. There are certain parts that you can bring back, but you can't bring back a full head. You can bring a cape. You can't bring back the spinal cord, but you can bring back quartered meat or even deboned meat. You can bring back a clean skull plate, but not one with brain material on it. So these are just, you know, we're not gonna rehash all of those here, but to Melissa's point, uh, driving, flying, whatever, you need to know what those rules are so that you're not breaking the rule. Uh, I remember when I lived in Ohio, somebody driving through town with an elk in the back of their, back of their vehicle, and I thought to myself, "Well, I know they didn't shoot that here, so how many different states did they break the law in driving that thing home?" So, uh, yeah, you need to be aware of that, and I'm really glad that you brought that up, Melissa. And well, another th thing, you know, my husband's a game warden. It is, it does not hurt to call ahead of places you're going and just acclimate yourself to the rules. Ask questions. Sometimes there's things that aren't extremely clear call and ask. You are so much better off calling ahead of time, asking, getting the information than showing up, getting in trouble and saying, well, I didn't know. Nobody goes for that. Um, yeah. Take the time to, to call and ask and, and to get the correct information. Well, Nick, if you remember when we were bow hunter ed instructors, there was always toward the month of like late July, August, where someone would call in, in a tizzy needing to have a certification bow hunter education certification because certain states require that and uh, Pennsylvania does not. So making sure that your training is actually appropriate for that state as well and is also something that I'm sure has plagued more than just that group of individuals that we actually had to emergently train. Yeah. I mean, and I keeping a copy of those cards. Yes. Um, I was just in a state where I did not know, but they required proof of your hunter safety card. Well, when I lived in Minnesota, on the back of my driver's license, it had under endorsements, hunter safety card. Well, now in South Dakota, they don't do that. And they needed proof that I had that actual card. And luckily, I keep a, a photocopy or just a picture in an album on my phone and of my bow hunter safety and my firearm safety. And that worked just fine. But, um, you know, those are things that you don't always think of because you seldom need them, but it's nice to have them when you do. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And it's happened to me. It's happened to me recently. On a, it was a crazy thing. I was going to Delaware and I literally was going to hunt with the governor of Delaware. And I, I didn't realize in Delaware you needed to take the special turkey hunting course. And so literally like the day before I was able to jump online and take that thing. And somebody literally met me over there with my, with my little sign permit. So yeah, don't let that happen to you for sure. That'll ruin a hunt really quickly. Let's transition to uh, what's going on. Unless there's something else we want to add to, to traveling and hunting. I want to, I want to give you a chance, Melissa, to talk about what's new with you and your show, what's going on with Winchester Deadly Passion. Uh, it shouldn't be lost on folks that this is a show that has been around for 13 years. And so that is a rare thing. And so there, nowadays, anybody, anybody 
can have it like Mike and I can start a show tomorrow. Nobody would watch it, but we could start one and have a YouTube show <laughs> tomorrow. Right. Uh, and so it's a different world than when you first got into this. And so to be able to have longevity like you have and just have every bit the same amount of success, or if, if not more than when you started, you have to be a good business person as well. But I want to give you a chance to talk about the business you're in, but also what's new and going on. What's next for Winchester Deadly Passion? Well, I think for me, I'm very lucky is because I've used a lot of the same things that have made me successful as a hunter, as in business, where you really have to be able to change and adapt as to how things are going, right? If I'm on a hunt and all of a sudden I have hot weather, I don't just quit and go home. You adapt and you make the most of it. And same with the business. I mean, from when I began TV to where we are today, a lot has changed. And if I would have just stayed the same rigid type person, I'd have gone broke. Um, so you really have to always be adapting. And one thing that I do a lot of that I think has really helped kind of my success overall, and it takes a long time. It's the slow way to do it, but is going to all these shows. I absolutely love going to these shows, meeting people, and I'll spend three, four days just literally talking with people, signing free pictures, taking photos with kids every day. But I've been doing that now for 13 years. And I've always been a firm believer that there's certain people that if you meet them, you really like them more. And then there's certain people that you're like, gosh, I probably shouldn't have met them because I liked them better <laughs> before I got to know them. And I hope that I'm the type of person when I meet these people that, you know, they're like, gosh, you're a real person. You're a hunter just like us. And word of mouth travels fast, especially when you're out there doing it. But, you know, it takes time. 13 years, I do shows from starting next week. I'll be doing shows all the way through April. Um, and I love it. I love being out there, listening to stories, seeing people's trail cam pictures, seeing little kids as deer. And what's cool is you start to know these people and they'll come back. They saw you maybe three years ago and now they come with a new picture and you know, it's just fun to do that. So I'll be at the great American outdoor show. I'll be there Monday through Friday this year. I have ATA coming up next. I'll be at shot show. I'm at the Minnesota Deer Classic. Um, I don't have a whole list. If you go on my website, I have a whole list of all the places I'll be. And I also do a lot of speaking engagements. I'll come and, and speak to SEI banquets or, or different dinners, Bow Hunters Association dinners, and just kind of be their keynote speaker, which is a small portion, but the whole day is spent with their members and just getting to know people. And I really think that that has kind of made the difference because you're getting out there, you're being with them, and people remember that. And I think that's what's kind of made the difference for me. And with Winchester Deadly Passion being in the 13th season, there's nothing I could be more proud of. Um, that's something that was always a dream and a goal of mine. A lot of people told me, uh, you better have a plan B. I don't know if that'll work. And <laughs> my plan B was just to work harder than everybody else. And I didn't have a plan B. So we need to make it work. Yeah. Well, I speaking think... of working harder, uh, the one thing that I want to make note of, and not that this is you know, trying to, you know, kiss up to you or anything like that. But one thing that I didn't know that Nick actually led me on to was that you're pretty much self-made. Yeah. You, you actually got into that business on your own because there wasn't a lot of opportunities for females and you made your opportunities. So I think that shouldn't, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but that shouldn't be overlooked either. I think you, you know, you deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, you know, and, and there's people that are born into it who have family members and I'm good for them. That's great. Um, some people are born into having a bunch of money where if you have enough money, you can set yourself up for a show and you could be probably successful. I didn't have any of those things. 
So what I had is the one goal is I really believed if I outwork everybody else and I'm the last person standing and I just don't quit, that's the road I'm going to try to take. So even when I got out of college, I had a double major. I thought, oh, I'm going to get hired so fast. I applied at 74 locations and got turned down by everybody. So I ended up working uh, for the North American Hunting Club for free. And I drove 150 miles a day every day um, back and forth to a free job. And then I had to work at night to pay my bills and pay for the gas. And I did that for four months just to get my foot in the door. And this wasn't like, here's a position for you on camera. This was to become a cameraman at a low paying job. Um, so people just need to know that it's not always a fast route. Um, it doesn't happen overnight, but if you build it up the right way, then you're building it strong, you know? And, and what helped me is that I learned every aspect of production. Um, to this day, I can do every part of this. I can build a show from start to finish. Um, and for many, many years, I did all that. I put in about a hundred hour weeks. Um, now I'm lucky enough. I have a great guy who helps me do some of the editing, but I still finish every show on my own. Um, I have a cameraman who comes with, but sometimes I do my own self-film tons. So I think it's important that if you have a goal that you don't just say you're willing to do whatever it takes, you actually need to do whatever it takes to make that successful. Because if you don't have someone funding you or bankrolling you, you'll go broke pretty fast. Yeah. There's no substitute for hard work. And um, Melissa has demonstrated that throughout her life in the several years now that I've had the, the pleasure of knowing you and have had a chance to see that, you know, for folks listening, I mean, you've done signings at booths that we've had. I've seen you interact with people out there uh, and we're going to tell you where to find more on Melissa here, but even, even if, on your website, melissabachman.com, you've never been shy about sharing like childhood pictures and how you grew up and like even our, you know, our dorkiest teenage moments, right? Like you've always put those right out there yeah. and they're just so genuine and so real. And I think a lot of people can put themselves in, in your shoes whenever they were, you know, similar age and then to the point where you're at now. And, um, and so I just love the fact that you share that you've always been willing to share that you've got a beautiful family, got the little guy showing up behind you there. Hi, Jax, you want to say something? Say hi. hi. Yeah, this one we have no school. Tell him you got out of school today. Which you know my own. <laughs> hey, tell him about your big deer hunts and turkey hunts. Are you gonna start hunting soon? I can know my. <laughs> okay, get out of here. <laughs> that's what happens on snow days. You got kids around everywhere. <laughs> no, I love it, and that's exactly it. I mean, and you've just you've posted a bunch about Jacks, and there's been his recent one with his interview is real is so really cool, and uh, you know, again, but I think that's just that's what people need to know that this is incredibly hard work. It's not just the 22 minutes you see watching a show on television and you know a lot of times they end with success and deer down and all that and so there's so much hard work that goes into it and so um other places people can find you i mentioned melissabachman.com is a great place the tv schedule's on there as well and i think you said you have your travel schedule on there uh, instagram at melissa underscore bachman is instagram facebook you can find winchester deadly passion and you also have a youtube channel at deadly passion what am i missing that pretty much covers it. That's all the spots. And, you know, we just we're a family that loves to hunt. And my number one goal has always always been to try to show others how important it is to have those family memory memories and bonds together and hopefully inspire a few other people to get out there and spend some time with their family and get outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'm inspired. We certainly appreciate your time, Melissa, for doing this. Thanks for all your help. Uh, you mentioned the places you go. You give an awful lot back. I think that's part of it, and you've certainly done that with us here at the National Deer Association and continuing to be on an advisory committee. So thank you so much for that. And hey, I look forward to seeing you very soon in, in, in uh, Indianapolis at the ATA show. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you there as well. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Mike, as someone who's done outfitted hunts and has also have also done DIY excursion type hunts, there was just so much great information there uh, that Melissa gave. And frankly, I, I don't know anybody that uh, travels as much as she does to hunt. So really, she is really a foremost expert on this topic. Yeah, it's it's really refreshing to hear somebody that has done that, that much in regards to traveling and utilizing guides versus DIY, but can synthesize it down to very important, usable points that people can take away. And I always like that. So um, I think she did a wonderful job with it. Yeah, she did. And I, and I had done, have not traveled nearly as much as, is what she has, but I've, but at the same time, I've traveled enough to have had positive and negative experiences. I had one in a bear camp one time that was awful <laughs> in Idaho, and I could go on and on about that. I, I shot a bear, which was good. If I hadn't, hadn't shot a bear, I'd probably be even more upset, but uh, that's another story for another time. So thanks uh, again to Melissa for taking the time out of her schedule to share that information. All right, Mike. It's that time again. It's the B-Team Report. All right. I've been ready for this, Mike, because I remember that I went first last time, which means you're going first this time. And I have a good one. So <laughs> as, as everybody knows that I'm... Uh, staying up here in New York and full disclosure, I have never had to do habitat work in the month of January. So just for everyone that is not from this area, when I went out for the first time last week, it was 24 degrees. I had six inches of snow on the ground in the woods. And what I ran into was I was cutting along and doing some work. And when I wanted to try and buck up some logs to get them out of my way, I was actually having to run the tip of my chainsaw in my bar down into the snow. And I'm ripping along there and having a having a big time thinking about, oh, how much better my place is going to be this year because I'm going to be able to get a lot of the jobs done that I couldn't do because of time and being a distance landowner. So I'm probably like halfway through my first tank of gas in that chainsaw and I'm ready to actually get my habitat hook out and pull some things the rest of the way down or move some things around. And I set the saw down, shut it off and, and go about work. I came back 10 minutes later because I needed to fire it back up again. I fire up the saw, it starts to run. I take off the chain break and I drop the, you know, hit the trigger to start the chain running and it bogs down and that chain's not moving. And I thought, well, what the heck happened here? And so put the brake back on, take a look at everything. It seems fine. Take the brake off. And I, I just see if I can even move the chain. And it's what has happened was the water from the snow or from the snow actually melted, created water mixed with the sawdust 
and um, got into the track of the bar and froze my chain down to the bar and locked me up cold. Mm -hmm. And I had no way of thawing it back out. So luckily I just jumped on the four wheel. I only brought one saw that day. So I ran up to the barn, put that one away, grabbed my other one, brought it out with a tarp to put it on so that at least I could keep it um, away from the snow. And I just, I just kept that thing running every couple of minutes. But if I set it down for more than 45 seconds, it would try and freeze up on me. So um, I became a lot less efficient, but I learned that when you're actually doing habitat work in the snow and 24 degrees, that you can freeze up your chainsaw. There you have it. Yeah, as soon as you said about setting it down in the snow, I thought, I bet this thing ends up freezing up on them, <laughs> which, I mean, that's, hey, that's a, that's a legitimate, uh, honest mistake that can happen. That's not as bad as whenever I couldn't get my sprayer to work because I didn't actually open the sprayer up and let the, <laughs> let the fluid get to the wand. So, you know, Hey, it's, you know, I, I put that in a little less of a silly category than that, but anyway, yeah. Hey, you're ahead of me though. I haven't even gotten out and done any habitat work. And I think it's because the winter has been so mild. I just haven't even, for whatever reason, I haven't been driven to want to go cut some trees and I've got plenty of work to do. And I'd like to get some fresh browse down to the deer, but I don't know. I, I don't think they're struggling too much out there as mild as it's been. I mean, even now we're at the end of January and in Pennsylvania, where I live in the Western half of the state, I still can't measure an inch of snow out there. So it's been pretty light. Oh, we got another inch last night. I'm I'm probably sitting on, well, it's like doing that, not freeze thaw, but where it just gets more and more dense. But truthfully, I've shoveled at least an inch of snow every day for the past four days. And two days ago, I shoveled six inches. So, you know, I'm, we're sitting on seven inches in the woods, probably. Yeah. Completely different world up where you're at. All right. My B team report. I had been mentioning about going to the trade shows and my report is coming from SHOT Show. And so I've been, I was trying to figure out, of course the COVID years really messed me up, but I think this was my ninth or 10th SHOT Show. So I'm no rookie for sure. And so the first morning, I, I always know the first day you get there, you go to bed nice and early because if you don't, it's tiring the rest of the way. And so I was in bed early, but then the next morning I got up and I said, well, it's gonna be a lot of walking today, which SHOT Show always is, it's a ton of walking. I'm going to go out and grab a decent breakfast so I don't have to worry about looking for lunch when I'm out on the floor. So I had no game plan though. And you would think when you're in Las Vegas, you can't walk 10 feet without finding a nice restaurant that has plenty of food for you in the morning. Well, that's actually not true. I don't know that early breakfast is a big thing in Vegas because most people are out so late, right? And so I'm staying, uh, if you're familiar with Vegas at all, I'm in the Flamingo Hotel, which is just a very... I'm cheap. Okay. So always trying to save the NDA money and stay at a place that's clean, but not fancy. And it's, it's a little bit of a walk as it is already over to the Venetian where the show is. And so uh, believe it or not, there is not a decent place to grab a breakfast in that hotel. Furthermore, there's not a decent place within like a half mile, both directions on that strip to find a decent breakfast. And so I even at one point, I said, well, I know there's a Denny's in this one spot. And so I, I finally, I walked all the way over to there. I get up to the top of the escalator and it's just a line out the door. And so between walking back and forth and, and trying to pick a place, I ended up right back in the Flamingo Hotel, right where my elevator doors open at one of those little kiosks. It's sort of like a Starbucks, but not exactly a Starbucks. Yeah. 
And to make this even worse, Mike, oh, it gets better. So finally, I'm on a, I'm on a bit of a, rest a restricted diet, okay? And so I was going to get one of these yogurt parfaits that has like some fruit and stuff in it, not some big greasy sandwich. I get all the way up to the front of the line and the woman says, oh, we don't have any more parfaits. So then all I had was a cup of coffee. And so I ended up literally back in my room and ended up eating a granola bar that I had in my backpack that I fly with to have a snack. <laughs> so to make matters worse, by the end of the day, when I looked at my uh, steps on my Apple watch, this was after that debacle, which I'd already put in like three or four miles just doing that. I walked 14.1 miles and 28,936 steps. Darn. And still only ended up with a cup of coffee, which was at the end of this, which was at, the, at my um, elevator door. Wow. That is, that's B team. That's a good one. That's how I started SHOT Show. Eating a granola bar that was already in my hotel room, but I went out and exhausted myself. And by the way, people think it's warm when you go, oh, you're going to Vegas in the winter. You're so lucky. It's not warm out there, folks. Okay. It is in the mornings, the highs are in the upper 30s. And so I'm out there in the cold looking for food and end up not finding it. And yeah, the highs are only like in the 50s or low 50s this time of year out there. So anyway, woe is me. I learned a lesson. Next year, I will be better prepared and I will have a game plan. And um, yeah, I just have to do better. So that's the B team report. This time around, I had others that I could have gone to, but I thought that was the, the best of the worst, if you will. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, we have some cool stuff happening at NDA. I want to make sure before we sign off today that I review that with everybody here. So our deer report is now available. This just kicked out last week. You can find that for free. It's a free download on our website. You can just go to our website, and if you don't see it immediately in the little search box, just type deer report. And you can go ahead and download that. There's a lot of great information. When we put that out to let people know it was available, one of our headliners was to tell people that 88% of all deer harvested during that reporting period were done on private land to just make, make sure people are aware that how much private land and the management of private land is so important uh, to deer and deer hunting. So that's available now. We also, when you're listening to this, it will be February 1st. We are launching our brand new Deer Steward One course, completely redone. I remember working on this uh, at some point last year when the guys were, were working on it and doing the filming and whatnot, and it's available now. So you're going to go ahead and uh, get a chance if you haven't taken Deer Steward, Steward One, or if you've already taken it and want to take it again, the new course, you get a chance to do that. So that's available. We also have a free giveaway that we've been doing doesn't cost you anything to do this either uh, maybe we should start charging for this stuff mike and i wouldn't have to stay in the flamingo <laughs> this just occurred to me well <laughs> that that is above my pay grade to make that decision so we, we can do like a, a bake sale or something uh anyway we are giving away a pair of vortex crossfire hd 8x42 binoculars just simply by going and making sure you're signed up for our newsletter. All you got to do is enter your name, your address, email address, and physical address, and you're entered to get this fine pair of Vortex binoculars. So you can do that. Go to deerassociation.com backslash Vortex. 
or if you go to our social media, we've been advertising it there. So that doesn't cost you a thing. We also have some other exciting things going on within the organization behind the scenes that I just can't tell you about yet, but they're going to be rolling out. It's just a fun and exciting time to be doing the work that we do and working hard for you, the deer hunter. Also, Mike, you may have caught this on my social media. Um, I got to spend some time with uh, the University of Pennsylvania working dog team. And yes, you can, you can train dogs to detect things like wildlife diseases and even uh, one of their projects there, they, they have dogs that can detect spotted lanternfly eggs and determine where those nasty things are. Just some really awesome stuff. And we have a, a partnership working with the Pennsylvania Game Commission and the University of Pennsylvania veterinary team and uh, what's called the Wildlife Futures Program. And I got a chance to go out and spend some time with that group doing some filming of their work. And we're going to be producing a video about the work that they do for CWD. So that was a that was a pretty cool day at the office, Mike, even if I did get knocked down and run over and beaten up by a bunch of black labs. Well, I noticed that in your picture, though, you were holding on to a short hair. So uh, I was pretty impressed by that. I was like, all right, he chose well for if you're going to, you know, stand for a picture, I was going to say I was, I was proud that you stood by short hair, even though I don't have short hairs anymore. Well, I actually did that for you, right? So the, the team consisted of three black labs and one, one German short hair pointer. And so uh, Yuki is the, is the short hair. And so I got to meet Yuki the last time I was out at the, actually at the laboratory and Yuki was there. And so when it came time for a group picture, yeah, I chose to hold Yuki and I thought Mike will be impressed by this. So there, you did notice. I, you're darn right I did. All right. So yeah, it's been a lot of exciting stuff going on. It's been a good week. Looking forward to getting that video out, among other things. So what's what's up with you, Mike? Anything new? I just completed my first week of classes here. So um, very good week. Great group of students. I'm uh, ridiculously happy with this job choice that I made and uh, enjoying it every minute of every day good yes that's that's key you got to work you might as well find a way to enjoy it and i'm glad things are working out for you up there in the i guess i'm in the cold north but you're in the slightly colder north so <laughs> i haven't seen you in a while we gotta we gotta find a way to get together it's like all of a sudden we live worlds apart so yeah we're doing the show remotely here nor we were seeing each other there probably on a weekly basis for a while i know when you needed something to drag your deer well, there you have it. When deer season comes in, I'll be looking you up. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hey, thanks again for listening uh, to the show. Hope you got something out of it. It's a pleasure hearing from those of you who have had many kind words that you're enjoying the show. So thank you. Uh, also, ask NDA anything. That's not next next episode. It'll be the one after, but don't wait around. Get us your questions in now and we'll consider them. Uh, by the way, I got to give away a hat. And so uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I've got a little pile of hats over here. So I'm going to go ahead and give a hat to both of you. Send me your, uh, please send me your mailing address when you hear this. Send me an email with your mailing address. We'll make sure we get that out to you. That's it for now, folks. Hope you have a great couple of weeks. Look forward to having you back for the next show. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. <laughs>